Church. My name is Dominic Wong. I'm an associate pastor here at the Bridge Church, where we exist to develop fully devoted followers of Christ in a multi-ethnic context. I hear your spirit. Last week, Pastor Brandon led us through the beginning of this new series that we're doing on the beginning part of Acts, calling this series Committed, because we think that the Bible is very clear that the people of God ought to be committed to the mission of God. Last week, Pastor Brandon brought up the mission that we are all a part of, the mission of going forth unto the nations and making disciples. But before that, Pastor Brandon also mentioned a concept that I wanted to talk about a little bit at the beginning of today's sermon. He brought up the words biblical literacy. Biblical literacy. Everyone remember that? Does everyone know what that means? Biblical literacy. <clears throat> what does it mean to be literate biblically? But the phrase is similar to, to, for those of you who have young children, as they're learning to read, as they're learning to go through their board books and, and piece together sounds and, and letters and, and make sense of what's on the page, we're kind of like that. We, the people of God, are, are trying to figure out what's going on in this Bible and, and not just reading the sounds and the letters, but finding out what does it mean. To be biblically literate is to know your Bible. Is to know your Bible. So how do we become biblically literate? What do we do? One of the first steps that me and Pastor Brandon have wanted this church to do is to just read through it. That's why uh, at the beginning of this year, we started a Bible reading plan to go through the Bible chronologically. If you did not catch up on that, if you uh, are behind, don't worry. It's never too late to join. It's okay to, to be a few weeks behind or to, to try to catch up. We want to do it together. We want to read through our Bibles together because that's the way that we become biblically literate. Sometimes people think about biblical literacy like just memorizing a bunch of verses, getting them kind of in your head, but that's one way of doing it. I think probably the best way to do it best way to become biblically literate is to think about what kind of relationship do you want to have with this book? What kind of relationship do you want to have to the Bible? There's a lot of folks who have the Bible up on the mantelpiece, right? And it, and it's, it just sits there and it collects dust. And maybe they bring it down on Christmas or on Easter and, and read out of Luke or something. But other than that, it's not really there? What kind of relationship? Do you want that kind of relationship? No, I don't think so. But some people, they treat their Bible like a dictionary, meaning that they, it's kind of there on the shelf, and that whenever they have a problem, whenever they have a question, they, they pick it off and they try to, try to find where it is, and when they get their answer, back on the shelf. Also not the kind of relationship I think we ought to have. So here's what I think. Do any of you have a favorite movie or a favorite album? There you go, The Lion King, yeah. If you know The Lion King, if, if, if it is a movie that you love, then you know every song by heart, right? You, you, you know what comes after what. You know which scene is coming next. You know what Mufasa's gonna say to Simba, right? Like, you could, it, it's, just, it's in your mind before it even happens on the screen. 
That's the kind of relationship I want us to have with our Bibles, to know it by heart, to, to, for it to be a, a, a close friend, something that we quote and reference. Now, why am I talking about this? Why, why am I, I starting this sermon off this way? Today, we're going to be looking at the first half of Acts chapter 2. You can turn there now, Acts chapter 2. This is the story of Pentecost, the story of the Holy Spirit coming to be among God's people. And it's kind of a challenging story, kind of a wild story. But I, I am of the firm opinion that to, to fully get, to, to fully understand what's going on in this passage, it helps to know the bigger picture. It helps to have some biblical literacy to know this story by heart, not just Pentecost, but the whole Bible, to place it and say, this scene comes after this. This is what Mufasa is going to say, or God. <laughs> Having that kind of familiarity with the Bible is going to help us make sense of what's going on here. Because the Bible is a story. The Bible is, is, is a series of events that really happened. And knowing our place in the story, knowing the scenes in the story is going to help us understand what's going on in each section. Am I clear? Okay. So the next question I have is, what is the story of the people of God? How do we tell our stories? If you ask the same question of us as, as Americans, what is our story? How do we tell that story? What kinds of events would pop up on the page? We think about... Jamestown, the early colonies. We think about the Middle Passage. We think about the War for Independence and the Underground Railroad and the Civil War and World War II, right? The, all these different major events that shape who we are as people and how we think about why we're here and what we're about. The people of God in the Bible knew their story. And this is, I think, how a lot of them would tell their story. It's a very complicated story, but I think there are four main things that would show up in every single one of their tellings. The first <clears throat> is this event that happens sometime after Genesis. It's the story of Babel. Are we familiar with the story, the story of Babel? At Babel, what happens? All of humanity gathers together, builds a tower, and says, we will make a name for ourselves. We're going to do this on our own. We don't need God. What does God do to them? He scatters them. He, he sends them out across the earth and says, no, that's not going to happen. You are all disobeying me. You are all rebelling against me. I'm going to send you out across the world. Scatter your tongues. You're going to speak in different languages. You want to understand each other. You're going to be divided. You will not be united against me. That's Babel, the first event. But in the Bibles, if you know your Bibles, if you know that scene, what's the very next scene? God calls a people for himself. God brings Abraham out of Ur. And the, the next few chapters, the, the next few books of the Bible follow this story of God choosing a people for himself. And that culminates in the next event, which is the Exodus. The Exodus. Do you all know that story? If you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you know it, right? <laughs> 
God, he, he sends plagues upon Egypt because his people are crying out for help. They've been in slavery for 400 years and they're crying out and God rescues them. God rescues them. At Passover, what does God do? He sends his spirit. He sends the angel, sends the angel out among his people. And, and, and all of those who put the blood of the lamb on their door, emerge unscathed. Their firstborn children are saved. And God, he, he, after that event, he takes his people out of Egypt. Pharaoh finally says, go. And so they get out. Unbelievably, they get out. God frees his people. That's the exodus. And why does God do that? Why does God choose one nation among all these nations for himself? Well, he tells Abraham much earlier before this, he says, I'm going to choose you and your nation to bless all the other nations. I'm going to pick one nation to bless all the other nations. Well, at Exodus, after that, 50 days later, at Sinai, God gives his people a gift. He gives them the law. A big mountain Thunder and storms and lightning, and then Moses descends, and he's carrying the word of God. And why is that so special? Because this, this is the instruction manual. Moses comes down, and he says, if you want to please God, this is exactly how you do it. Here is the law. Here is how you please God. But then something goes wrong. And many, many hundreds of years later, the people of Israel their story seems like it's ended at the exile, at the exile. At this event, God's chosen people, God's people who were supposed to bless all the other nations, God's people who were supposed to be pleasing God and doing the law, they don't. And so God scatters them. He scatters his people among the nations. Just like at Babel, his people become like all the other nations, and so he scatters them. God says, you're no longer my people. God says, my presence was with you. My glory was dwelling in your temple, but now it's leaving. Now I'm removing it. So that's, I think, how they would tell the story. At the time of Jesus, this is how the people of God would have understood their own story. They would have said, we were God's chosen nation, but we failed. And so God scattered us. Now we're here. Now how are we going to please God? Are we all clear on that? Do we all get the basic gist of the story. So now, as we look at the story, as we try to diagnose what was wrong, what was going on with Israel, what went wrong? What went wrong? There was so much promise. They were God's people. They were going to be a blessing. And, and, and then, not. And then they were scattered. The people who were supposed to be a blessing ended up looking like all the other nations. God's people failed to be God's people. And that's a lesson for us, Bridge. We do this all the time. Do you look different from people around you who don't know Jesus? The people in your workplace, the things they talk about, the, the way that they treat each other. Do you do the same thing? Your family, the bickering and the fighting that happened at Christmas dinner and everyone calling each other names and insults. Did you do that too? 
to look just like those who are not the people of God. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be in this world, but not of it. To be among those who do not know Jesus, but to not be like them. The people of God in the Old Testament were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be distinct. They were supposed to please God, to know him. They had the law. They had exactly what they needed to do it, but they didn't. And so God scattered them. How could this happen? How could they fail? How many of you have big plans for 2023? New Year's resolutions. Things you you want to happen. Maybe this is the year that, that, that you finally, finally get that one thing done. That one home project. Maybe this is the year that that diet finally works and sticks. Maybe this is the year that, that you, you finally accomplish your, your, your lift goals. You, you, you're, you're making gains this year. Maybe this is the year that you read through your Bible all the way. That's a good one. I looked up a statistic this week. 41% of Americans make New Year's resolutions. You want to take a guess at how many of them keep them? It's actually 9%, which is higher than I thought it would be, but still pretty low, 9% of 41. So that's, I don't know, you do the math. I don't do that. Why doesn't it stick? Why, why can't we, we do what we want to do? Like, like if, if I have a goal... If I know what I want to do, and if I want to do it, how come I can't? Why don't I? Folks, what I found is that good intentions are not enough. Having a game plan is not enough. Even having motivation is not enough. You think maybe this is the year that you kick that bad habit? That's easier said than done. You might might really even want to do it. God, just help me break this. And and you find yourself doing the same thing over and over again. Why? Because intentions, a plan, motivation, those aren't enough. The people of God felt this. Israel had personally experienced God's deliverance. They, they saw the cloud and the lightning. They, they saw the waters split. They saw Pharaoh's armies destroyed in it. They knew that God was God. They knew that God could do it. And they had God's perfect law. This was, this was a step-by-step instruction manual on how to please God. There was no question, no, no doubt as to how to do it. And yet simple things they couldn't do. It wasn't enough. From from day one, actually at the very moment that Moses was descending from the mountain with the law, what were the people of Israel doing? If you know your story, they were worshiping a golden calf. One of the few things that Moses said, don't do, don't, don't make an idol for yourself. So what was the problem? The people of God failed because even though they knew what to do, They didn't have the power to do it. They didn't have the heart to do it. They had the plan, but they didn't have the power. 
What did Pastor Brandon read out of the catechism this morning? By the way, we have printed out the catechisms and they're in the foyer. Uh, as you come through those doors, you can pick them up and uh, they're, they're really nice to just have throughout the week and read. What does the first question of today's catechism say? It says, how do you come to know your misery? And the answer is the law of God tells me. Now, isn't that strange? This is God telling you how to please him. Why would this make you miserable? Well, having, having New Year's resolutions that you don't keep, it's almost better to have not made them at all, which is why I don't make a lot of New Year's resolutions myself. Because <laughs> we know what God's law requires of us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is really easy. Love God, love neighbor. But can we live up to this perfectly? That's the last question. And you all knew the answer before it even came on the screen. What was the answer? No. No. Because I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. That's where I go. That's my heart. That's, that's who I am. I might know exactly what to do, but I can't do it. The people of God, they had the plan, but they didn't have the power. But that changes here in Acts 2. 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus' disciples are waiting. Christ has told them, I'm going. Wait. Christ ascends to heaven and his disciples, all the believers, are waiting. They meet together in an upper room and they're praying and they're waiting and they know that something's going to happen and then something amazing happens. So Bridge, please stand for the reading of God's word out of the book of Acts chapter 2. We're going to be reading just the first 13 verses for now. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they're filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> so this is a wild story. The people of God, the believers, the disciples of Christ, waiting in the upper room for something to happen. 
<laughs> and then suddenly, rushing winds. And imagine in this room, just this, the, the, the chandeliers start shaking, the windows start rattling, and it's filling the entire house. You can barely breathe. It's everywhere. And then suddenly, divided tongues descending, tongues of fire just falling from the roof from the ceiling and landing on each one of us. And, 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 and I start speaking Arabic and Kirstie starts speaking French and Connie's speaking Spanish. Oh, you, you, you already speak Spanish, don't you? Oh, okay, that's <laughs> still cool, it's still cool. As the Spirit gives them utterance. And, 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 and the believers are just sitting there doing speaking in the Spirit. But they're not alone. Because as they're, as they're speaking in these different tongues, people outside of, of, of their, their house, outside of their building, they hear all this. And they know something's up because what they should be hearing, right, is Aramaic or Hebrew, the things that people there spoke, maybe Greek. But they're, they're coming up, they're walking, and they're saying, wait, hold on. I didn't think there were Egyptians here today. I thought I was the only Elamite, the only person from Pontus in Asia. But I'm hearing them speaking in my language. And, and, and folks, these people, they're all Jews. And so we have to ask the question, why are these Jews speaking other languages? Shouldn't they all be speaking Hebrew? Why are, why are they speaking the language of the Medes and of Mesopotamia and of Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia? We just talked about that earlier, didn't we? The exile, when God scattered them. But something is happening here where God is undoing the exile. God's people have been scattered, divided in their tongues, just like at Babel. But now God's saying, hey, I'm bringing my people back together. I'm making it possible. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give my people the ability to understand each other. Why? Because there's something I want them to hear. I want them to know something. What does it say in verse 11? I want them to hear the mighty works of God. Because what did God just accomplish 50 days earlier? On the cross, on the tomb, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation of the whole world. This is big news, this is good news, and God wants his people, Israel, to know it. He's saying, folks, the exile is done. The exile is reversed. I scattered you, but now I'm gathering you. Why was God doing this? Why now? How was God doing this? Well, the answer to that is because in this passage, what we see is God's people finally getting what they needed all along. The power that they needed is they're receiving it now. now. The law was not enough. Knowing God's will was not enough. God's people needed deeper change. Here, God is fixing the root issue. He's empowering his people to do his will. What did God's people need? What was God going to give them? Long ago, God had made a promise. Centuries earlier, in fact, in fact, right at the time of the exile, right as God was saying, I'm going to scatter you. 
The judgment did not come without a promise. Did not come without a comfort. Ezekiel 36 says this, if I can get that up on the screen. It says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water in you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And here, look here in verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And what kind of spirit is God gonna give them? Well, let's see. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Do you get what's happening here? Uh, Kirstie and I, we, we just totaled our car over Thanksgiving. Um, we hit a deer. Um, and the insurance company gave us the equivalent money uh, of what the vehicle was worth um, so that we could buy a replacement. We had a little 2008 Toyota Prius, which crumbled into dust when the deer hit it. And who knows, we might get that again. But the car we get is going to be of equivalent value to the one that we lost. That's not what's happening here. God is not just giving them a second chance. He's not just giving them a new heart, another 2008 Toyota Prius. God's, he says, here's my Cadillac. It's yours now. You get a new spirit, but not just any spirit. This is my spirit, and I am putting it within you to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. The people of God are finally going to be the people of God because they are going to be able to do God's will. They will be able to walk in his statutes, to obey his rules, and the reason they're going to be able to do that is because God is going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. God is going to give them the power to do what they knew they ought to be doing all along. The exile will be reversed when they receive God's spirit. And so 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, 50 days after Jesus' Passover sacrifice, after Christ accomplishes his exodus, 50 days later on Pentecost, God's people receive something better than Sinai, something better than the law. Here at Pentecost, God's spirit is coming down to dwell with God's people. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. This last Christmas, we celebrated the coming of Emmanuel. Which, what does that mean? God with us. Jesus is God with us. God was present among us. He, he, he walked on this earth. People saw him. He really did. Imagine what it would have been like to be one of Jesus' disciples, to, to sit there at God's feet, to, to be able to see him and talk to him and learn from him. I think that's the kind of presence that we all wish we would have. We, we have right? How many of us would give everything to just sit at Christ's feet for a second? <clears throat> But Bridge, do, do you remember what Pastor Brandon read to start us off this morning? It was from John 16. And, and it's, it's a shocking statement. 
Jesus himself says this. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, hold on. Jesus, how could it possibly be better for you to leave? This doesn't make sense because because I want to sit at your feet forever. I I, I want to learn from you. I, I want to be able to touch you. But Jesus says, no. As, as, as great as that is, I have something better for you. Bridge, we're, we're, we're reading about that right now. What is better than sitting at Jesus' feet? Having Jesus in your heart. Bridge, with the Holy Spirit, we have an even greater presence than having Jesus right there because we have him right here. <laughs> Folks, when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, he unites you to Christ so that you are never away from his presence. The disciples, they had a time when, when, when it, it felt like Christ wasn't there. Remember what they did when, when Jesus was on the cross? They said, oh no, he's gone. And they hid and they ran away. We don't have to fear that kind of, that kind of feeling anymore. We know that Christ is with us. We know that God dwells in us. And folks, to be clear, the Holy Spirit is, is he's not some kind of energy or force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. Yes. And so just as God was with us, Emmanuel, when the Spirit of God, when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, God is in us. Let that sink in. The creator of the universe has chosen to make his home in you. Beloved, if you are one of God's people, then God lives in you. This is a stunning reality. At exile in the book of Ezekiel, we are told that the glory of God departed from the temple. He left. He said, Israel, you can no longer bear my presence. I am too holy to dwell among an idolatrous and adulterous people. And so God left. His presence left. But at Pentecost, God's presence descends in tongues of flame and the Holy Spirit makes his home, not in a building, but in us, in our hearts. The people of God became God's temple. What a lot of people say, you know, my body is a temple. What do they mean by that? I mean, I, I, I gotta treat my body right. I got, there's all these fancy skincare routines and I gotta get pampered and... I want to say that's getting it wrong. That's not, that's missing the point of what it means for our bodies to be a temple. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. It says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own? The emphasis is not on the building. The emphasis is not on the temple, but on the God who dwells inside it. Folks, When we're told that our body is a temple, what that means is that God has chosen to make us his home, which means that wherever we go, the spirit goes. Wherever we are, God is. God's people are God's presence on earth. Why did God choose to do this? Why did God choose to give us a gift like this? Let's look at the final section of our passage, starting in verse 14. 
Peter, he's listening to all the people around outside the building talk about what's going on inside. He's hearing them have questions and say, well, what's going on here? What does this mean? But he's also hearing them say, these people are drunk. They are under the influence. I don't know about you, but when, when, if, if I have a glass of wine to drink, I don't start speaking in, in, in a language I don't know. That's, that's, that doesn't happen. This is, they're, they're getting it wrong, but, but Peter, what does he say? Peter, verse 14, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's not even happy hour. (laughs) But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even all my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Who's God talking about? Everyone. Men and women, young and old, rich and poor. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a number of questions that come out as we read that. First, When are the last days? Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you right now that we are living in the last days. I want to tell you right now that we are living in the final age before Christ returns. Because he could come back at any moment. You do not know the day or the hour. We are in the last days. And so yes, brothers and sisters, that means that things like these will happen today. Prophecies and visions and dreams and vapor of smoke. All of these are a reality right now for the people of God. So what about another question? What if I don't do these things? (laughs) Personally, I have never prophesied or had a vision or spoken in tongues. We'll just say that plain. Do I have the spirit? There are some who would say I don't. But I want to bring up another verse to you, Romans 8. It says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Christ, you have the spirit. And if you don't have the spirit, you don't belong to Christ. But we're told that all who believe, who receive and believe in his name gain the right to be called children of God. That's all it takes. You believe in God, you are a child of God. And if you're a child of God, you have the Spirit. But so what if you don't do these things? What if if you don't prophesy? What if you don't have visions? What if you don't have tongues? And I believe those things do happen today. 
I think Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. He says, you know, the gifts of the Spirit, it's not just the flashy stuff. Some people will say, if you can't speak in tongues, you don't have the Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians 12, it says this, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? I think the answer he's expecting is no. Of course not. We're not all apostles. I'm not. Do we all speak in tongues? No. Different people have different gifts. And by the way, one of the gifts people have is administration. One of them is encouragement. These are, these are different gifts that we all have. It's not just the flashy stuff, although this stuff is real. So what are some things the Spirit does give us? Well, Pastor Brandon read it this morning. He convicts us of sin. He convicts us of righteousness. He convicts us of judgment. The Holy Spirit renews our hearts. He gives us new birth. Born of the Spirit. What else does the Spirit do? He bears fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What else does the Spirit do? He glorifies and magnifies Christ. He points us to Jesus. What else does the Spirit do? He he reminds us of our identities as sons and daughters of Christ by adoption. He convicts us of sin. He helps us pray on our behalf. He empowers us to do God's work. That's just the beginning. This is a long list. The Spirit does so many things for us. And if you are a believer, if you are found in Christ, and if the Spirit of God dwells in you, all of this is yours. All of this is yours. You are empowered to do God's work if you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Brothers and sisters, as we just read in this last section, this is not just power for power's sake. Why are we empowered? Why in Acts 2 do the disciples receive the Holy Spirit? It's an empowerment with a purpose. Verse 11 said what? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Those who have the Spirit are empowered to proclaim God's mighty works. Because go back just a chapter to what Pastor Brandon preached on last week. What did it say? Chapter 1, verse 8. It said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And why? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you see what's going on? What is the Spirit doing? The Spirit is empowering God's people to do what they should have been doing all along. To accomplish the mission, to do their original goal, to be a blessing to the nations. Bridge, why are we a multi-ethnic church? Because we believe at Pentecost, this began, that at Pentecost, our, the body of believers, the sons and daughters of God, were empowered to accomplish our original mission of being a blessing to all the nations. Christ says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and in all the ends of the earth. And what happens? What happens? You can look it up on your own, but in Acts 8, the disciples go and they come across some Samaritans and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 10, the disciples go and they encounter Gentiles, people from the nations, And they receive the Holy Spirit. 
what is happening here? Well, if at Pentecost, God is undoing the exile by fulfilling Sinai, by giving Israel a better law, then in Acts 8 and in Acts 10, what is God doing? He's undoing Babel. We're moving our way backwards through the story. Babel, Exodus, Sinai, exile. We're going back. And God is bringing things back to what they were originally supposed to be. His chosen people, perfectly pleasing God because they have new hearts, bringing blessings to all the nations to gather them together to be one people, God's people. That's why we have a multi-ethnic church. This is why. Because we believe that God is calling all nations to himself to a greater unity than any of us has in the spirit. So that as I look out at this crowd, and I really just see Kirsty and me as the only Asians, I actually believe that we have more in common than I do with non-believing Chinese people. Because we have the same spirit dwelling in us. Oh my goodness. Bridge, this is a gift. Bridge, this is a gift. So what does all of this mean for us today? Well, it means that if we are going to be God's people, if we're going to be a church, then we need to know what to do, we need to know God's law, but we also need to have the power to do it. If we want to please God, we have to know that we can't do it on our own power. We cannot lean on our own flesh. Worship team, you can come up. This is something to pray for. All believers have the Holy Spirit living in them, but actually the Bible commands even those who have the Spirit to be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? It means that sometimes believers who have the Spirit might not be living like it. And sometimes there is room for greater dependence on the Spirit. Moments of greater spirit empowerment. Bridge, I don't, I would love for us to have that be the deepest yearning of our heart. To be something that we pray for every morning. God, would you just fill, fill me with your spirit. Empower me by your spirit. Bridge, this is not something optional. This is, this is mission critical. We are in the last days. We are in the last chapter of the story, and we know what we have to do. Our mission is clear. We are to make disciples of all nations. But we can't accomplish the mission on our own. Israel couldn't do it. We can't do it. We cannot trust in programs or building projects or evangelism training or conferences or retreats or worship teams or all of those other very good things that the church has. They're good, but we cannot trust and rely on them. In the rest of the series, Pastor Brandon and I are going to be going through some of the things that a church ought to do. And for every sermon in the rest of the series, this week and last week's messages are key. Everything we do must be for the sake of the mission. And everything we do must be by the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it by our own power. We might think we can, we might be able to increase attendance and giving, you know, make a name for ourselves in the community. Lots of churches do all of that without God's help, without the Spirit's empowerment. But if we want to please God, 
If we want to be a church that is faithful and effective, then there is no other way than by God's Spirit. Bridge, we need to be like the believers that day on Pentecost. Not relying on our own wisdom and saying, oh, well, this is how I do it. This is how we do it at my company or in the business world. No. What were the believers doing that day in the upper room? They were waiting. Bridge, we need to wait on the Spirit. We need to recognize that He is living inside of us, that He has made His home among us. And so, because of that, He needs to be part of every conversation, every decision. We need to open our eyes to what He is doing. Bridge, we need to be a Spirit led church. We need to be an Acts 2 church. We need to be a Pentecost church. And we do that by trusting in the Spirit. So Bridge, I would ask you to pray with me right now as we invite the Spirit to be the center of our church. Oh, Holy Spirit. Oh, would you please just open our eyes to your presence to help us know that you are among us and to see what it is that you are doing. Holy Spirit, we know that you are active, that, that you blow like the wind and, and, and you do not stop. That you, th This moment in our community, you are doing things that we cannot dream of. You are, you are changing hearts. You are, you are causing people to, to forgive one another and reconcile with one another. God, that you are softening people. Help us to recognize this, to be a part of what's going on. God, teach us not to rely on ourselves and our own understanding, but to lean on you. Holy Spirit, give us spirit-empowered vision this week and the next in our whole lives. God, let us be like the church that day on Pentecost, open and receptive to whatever you, you want to do. We know that we can't do it on our own. We know that this mission that we have, we cannot accomplish on our own, that we need you. The Spirit, we're leaning on you. We're depending on you. We're trusting in you. Would you be our power? Would you empower us to do God's will? We pray this in the marvelous, majestic, and matchless name of Jesus Christ.